All right, there we go. So, and you know that if you start um, pointing out that elephant in the room, you know that if you start pointing out that nail, then um, it just won't be good. So oftentimes there's things that we do not want to address. Um, oftentimes that there are things that when we bring them up, it makes other people mad. Do any of these things sound familiar in our families? Right? It's kind of like this video sometimes. And not, I mean, this is like the epitome of every um, husband and wife argument, isn't it? Stop trying to fix it, <laughs> you know? And, but really, this, is, this comes back to us a lot of times around Thanksgiving and Christmas and holidays. And we are in this series called Home Run Life, where we are looking at kind of like these four steps of God's uh, plan to, uh, to, to really win with, with God. And what does that look like for our lives? And so the first one was dependence. The second one was, um, was we have to win dependence on God first. And then the second one was we have to build a God's strength and character. And today what we're looking at is winning in relationships. How do we win in relationships? And I love that video, but it just points out this this thing of when you're dealing with this difficult pain issue, things that need to be talked about but that are never talked about, it gets hard. It gets tough, doesn't it? So many times there's an elephant in the room. I have a picture of an elephant in a room. It was drawn, um, it was done by this guy named Banksy, who's an artist. He's a street artist in LA, or I'm sorry, in Britain, and he's gone all over the world. And one of the things that he did just to, to make the metaphor completely obvious, was, I don't know if you can see it, but in the very back of the elephant, there's wallpaper, and the elephant's painted like the wallpaper. And this is so many times what it is, what's going on in our lives, in our relationships. There's something huge in the room. There's something that's a big problem in the room. And then when we go and address it, it just sort of, you don't do it at first, and then you go, okay, I'm gonna, I'll get to it next week. And then you don't address it again, and then you say, you know what, I'll just get to it the week after that. And then you go, no, 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 I'll, I'll get it to it the next week. And you let it go, and you let it go, and you let it go, and pretty soon it just becomes part of the room. It just becomes part of the relationship. It just becomes part of the entire problem. And so I think that when we learn to address these in a God-honoring way, we really begin to, um, to find healing and to find forgiveness and to find um, even better relationships. So I'm going to tell this story this morning that takes up about, um, really about 25 chapters in the Old Testament. We're not, we're going to read through just little bits of it. Um, and a couple weeks ago, we talked about the story of Jacob and, and Esau. And then before that, we talked about the story of Joseph. So I'm going to hit on those a little bit again, but we're going to talk about their reconciliation stories about how they came together and addressed what was really going on, what was really happening and how they found healing from that. How many of us, if we really think about it, need to do that in our lives? We need to find the things that are really hurting and go after and talk about those. So Jacob and Esau, these are brothers who were destined to clash. A few weeks ago, we talked about them, and I'm just going to recap their story real quick, and that way you get a frame of reference for who we're talking about. Esau was the firstborn, and Jacob was the secondborn. He was a twin, and he was sly. And he liked to do things, like he stole his brother's birthright. And then after that, um, actually, he, he weaseled his brother's birthright out of him. And then, he, um, and then he stole his brother's blessing. And then he went and stole from his uncle Laban. Well, he used an old shepherd's trick to trick him and, and take off 
with his stuff. Until finally God wrestled him down by this point in the river where he confessed who he was, confessed that he was basically a thief and uh, living under his brother's promise. And he began to live a life dependent on God. And what was interesting is when all of this was happening, he had 12 sons. And he had these 12 kids that backstabbed each other, committed adultery, eventually sold out their own brother into slavery because Jacob wasn't necessarily around. Genesis chapter 30, it talks a little bit about Jacob. Chapter 30, verse 43, it says, In this way the man grew exceedingly prosperous and came to its own, um, came to own large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. So Jacob became this extremely prosperous guy. And what we're talking about here um, in this series, Home Run Life, there's a, there's a diagram coming up. Usually when I lift my hand up, it comes up. But what we're talking about here in this series, there we go, is in, in home base, you're winning dependence. It's this time where you just say, God, I am yours and confess who you really are. Then you win with character, then you win with community, and then you win with results in your own life. Now, Jacob was a guy who was always growing his flocks. He ran to third base first, and it was evident in everywhere else in his life. Everywhere else in his life, his relationships were messed up, his relationship with his brother, and his character was flawed because he continually did this thing of lying, cheating, and stealing. Because he went after results first in his life. He didn't care about a God-strengthened character. He didn't care about God-strengthened relationships. All he cared about was growing exceedingly prosperous and wealthy. And when he began, when God called all that into question in this wrestling match down by the river, um, when God called all that to question, that's when his life really began to change. That's really when he began to do different things in his life. So Jacob cared a little bit more about results than character. He was always trying to build his own empire. So what happened, keep continuing forward in Genesis 33, 1 through 8, what happened after this wrestling match down by the river is that Jacob said, okay, I need to go meet my brother Esau. And he was already going to be going through his territory. And so this is what happened, Genesis 33, 1 through 8. Now, remember, during this time, Esau is not happy with Jacob. Esau um, knows full well that he stole his blessing. Esau does not like this guy very much. In fact, he was trying to kill him, and that's why Jacob ran away in the first place. Genesis 33, verses 1 through 8. Jacob looked up, and there was Esau coming with his 400 men. So he divided the children among Leah, Rachel, and the two female servants. He put the female servants and their children in front of Leah and their children next, and Rachel and Joseph in the rear. He himself went on ahead and bowed down to the ground seven times as he approached his brother. But Esau ran to meet Jacob and embraced him. He threw his arms around his neck and kissed him, and they wept. Then Esau looked up and saw the women and children. Who are these with you? he asked. Jacob answered, they, they are the children God has graciously given your servant. Then the female servants and their children approached and bowed down. Next, Leah and her children came and bowed down. Last of all came Joseph and Rachel, and they too bowed down. Esau asked, what is the meaning of all the flocks and the herds I met? To find favor in your eyes, 
my Lord, he said. So what Jacob did is he saw his brother with 400 men. And you've got to be thinking at this time, if your brother way off in the distance has this large group of men, maybe he's trying to hurt me. Maybe he's trying to, to gather this little army and come up against me and steal all my stuff. And so what he does is he arranges all these flocks in little waves of flocks to come. And, and he arranges them as gifts to kind of overwhelm his brother with this gift. It's almost to say this magnitude of the, the sheep and the goats that, that are coming towards you is the magnitude of sin that I have done against you. And so I'm going to confess that and have these go out ahead of me. Before I even come, to, and before I even meet you, I want you to receive all these gifts because of how badly I screwed this thing up. Sometimes in our relationships, there's times where you just need to send a flock of goats and sheeps ahead of you in order to reconcile a situation. So we know these times. We've messed up before. We've had hard times relationally. So what he did by dividing his flocks is essentially to say, all of this that I have gained was at your expense. All of I gained was under your blessing. All I've gained was under your birthright. All I have gained was really because of you. And I weaseled my way into this position, and now I'm giving it back. Really what he was doing was he was honestly, finally, probably for the first time in his life, honestly addressing the situation and the problem between he and his brother. He was getting real honest with it. Verses 9 through 11. But Esau said, I, have, I already have plenty, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. No, please, said Jacob, if I have found favor in your eyes, accept this gift from me. For to see your face is like seeing the face of God. Now that you have received me favorably, please accept the present that was brought to you. For God has been gracious to me and I have all I need. And because Jacob insisted, Esau accepted. And look what happened. It was Esau, the angry person who was robbed, who was wronged, who was taken, who forgave his brother. Jacob had kind of a dysfunctional family. And I think dysfunction sometimes begets dysfunction, doesn't it? Like if we, if we really screw up in our, in our own um, lives, like maybe raising our kids, and maybe our kids kind of grow up that way, and so sort of this defunction sort of begins to, to generationally um, trickle down a little bit. And this is really what happened with Jacob's family. So Jacob finally made it right with his brother. He finally, um, kind of, finally, in a sense, confessed to what he did by sending all these sheep and goats out ahead of him. But he still instilled this sense of dysfunction into his kids. His kids who would lie, cheat, steal. His kids who would commit adultery. His kids who would sell another brother into slavery. His kids were not the greatest kids in the world, but yet they became the 12 tribes of Israel. They became this nation that God had blessed. And so, you know, they were guilty of a number of things, including murder, in fact, the civil rival, civil rival, sibling, there we go, the sibling rivalry was so bad that that's where we get to the story of Joseph. Many of you know the story um, of Joseph. 
Joseph was Jacob's son, and he was one of the youngest sons. He had favor from his father, and his father made him this richly ornate coat, and, and he blessed him, and he basically put him over his brothers. He had them, he had them supervise his older brothers, and he kept having these dreams of grandeur and superiority. And finally, he was sold into slavery and sent down to Egypt only to, to be the servant of this guy's house named Potiphar. And then from there, he was thrown into jail because Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, and it didn't go over so well. So he was thrown into jail because she claimed that he did it. And then he's down now in Egypt alone in jail. And eventually, God grants him favor, and he's able to interpret some dreams from a king. And, and after 20 or so years, now he's at the head of Egypt as, as sort of the king's right-hand man, um, uh, uh, the pharaoh's right-hand man. And, and he sort of knows that there's this great famine coming, and there's not going to be any food. And so if, if he were to just store up the right amount of food, then later on, that, that life would be okay for all of Egypt. And so he begins to set this plan in motion to store up food so that this plan could go in motion and, and so that um, these people could have food over the next seven years of famine. And so what happens is, even though Joseph rela- Joseph's relationship is completely ruined, after 20-some-odd years, when there's a famine, his brothers come down to Israel. And, I'm sorry, his brothers come down to Egypt Genesis 45. And we're going to look at that when they first met up for the very first time. Genesis 45, verses 1 through 8. It says this, Then Joseph could no longer control himself. Now this is the second time he met his brothers, and his brothers did not know who he was. Before all of his attendants, he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household even heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Why would they be terrified at his presence? Maybe this dude is out for some revenge. Why are they terrified? Because he was sold into slavery, thrown into a pit, so maybe now that he's the number two in all of Egypt, he's going to come down and kick some butt. I mean, maybe that's what he's going to do. And so they're terrified. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been a famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of the entire house, and ruler of Egypt. See what Joseph did here? One of the things he did is he addressed the elephant in the room. He said, it was you that sent me here, but, but really it wasn't. He addressed what was really going on. And he said, it, it was really, you know, you guys who, who you, you thought at least it was you that sent me here. 
But then he did something else that we need to be careful to do in our relationships. He acknowledged what God was doing. He saw and he looked for what God was doing. And he said, it's because God actually sent me here so that I could set up this whole thing so that you could actually have food and live and you could become a remnant and and the whole nation of Israel, God's entire plan could be salvaged. So it wasn't you that kicked me out here. It was God. See, he acknowledged what God was doing in the relationship. I just want to share with you this simple truth that I've just learned in my life. I got this little triangle. Okay, so what I've realized in my life is the closer in a relationship, say if this was like me and my wife, the closer we both get to God, the closer we get to each other. It's really simple, right? There's nothing magical about it. It's the closer we get to God, the closer we get together. And this is the same in other relationships and friendships and all kinds of those. The closer you get to God, the closer you get together. And so acknowledge what God is doing in the relationship. I think that's a huge and very important thing to do. Joseph actually had to completely change his perspective to come to that. He had to acknowledge what God was doing in the relationship. Many times the elephant has been in the room for so long that it just blends in and that you can't even tell that it's actually there anymore. I mean, it had been 20 some odd years. I wonder if his brothers were like, man, maybe he'll forget that we, you know, sold him into slavery. I don't know. (laughs) I agree, Patrick. Have you ever felt extreme anger over something really small? There's probably an elephant in the room. Have you ever just gotten extremely frustrated because of something ridiculously small? Somebody may have even said to you, why'd you blow up over that? There's probably an elephant in the room in your relationship that you need to deal with. What I have found is that for healthy people um, with a God strength and character, they talk about their issues. They do not run away from them. They do not pretend and they do not hide. They do not run from healthy confrontation. And that's the great thing about Joseph. He could have run away from this, healthy, from this confrontation, but he didn't. Even with Jacob and Esau, Jacob knew he had to face his brother. He didn't exactly have to go back through this land. He could have probably gone somewhere else, but he went to go face his brother. We need healthy confrontation in our lives in order to have a healthier relationship. We absolutely need that. When we are dependent on the Lord, when we have a God's strength and character, then we are actually in the best position of our lives to address relationship issues. How might your life change if you were able to address whatever elephants were in the room? No one really likes to do this. I mean, this is awkward. It could be painful. It could be hurtful sometimes. But when you think about it, the alternative is never addressing it, and the problem gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And so we have to address these things. And so what I want to do is give us five kind of ways, five godly ways to address the elephant in the room in our relationships, to address the nail on the forehead of our relationships. So one, the first one is value others above yourself. I know that sounds like, ridiculously simple. And that's the great thing about following Jesus. This is ridiculously simple. It doesn't need to be super complex. Follow, value others above yourself. Philippians 2, 1 through 4 
And this is the verse I give to a lot of young couples um, before, they're, before they get married. I give them this verse. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, Value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Husbands and wives, the vows you took to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, for sickness and health, and to love and to cherish till death do us part. These vows are essentially to value your spouse ahead of yourself. They're going to be my very first value. So how are we doing with this? Men, do you value your wives more than you value yourself? Do you value your wife more than the guys? Do you value your wife more than the game? Do you value your wife more than the phone? Women, do you value your husbands above yourselves? See, a Christian marriage and Christian relationships ought to look like mutual voluntary submission. So we voluntarily submit to one another. A lot of times I do marriage counseling, and it, 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 I, I haven't really run across guys like this, but there, there's a certain mentality of some guys that say, you need to obey me. And that's not at all what the Bible says. The Bible actually says submit. And when the book of Ephesians, it says submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes on this whole long thing about what submission looks like. But the interesting thing is that the very next chapter, it says children, obey your parents. The apostle Paul had that word available to him. He could have used it. But what he really rather would have gotten across is for husbands and wives to submit to one another. Consider one another better than yourselves. That's the point he was trying to get across. And that's what we need to do in our relationships. And when we come across in our relationships as more superior or better than other people, then that's, we're destined for problems, aren't we? We're destined for issues. So what I would say here is mutual voluntary submission. It means you submit to the Lord and you no longer have to fight, worry about fighting for yourself. Submit to God and value others the way God values it, uh, the way God values you. That's it. I'll say it one more time. Submit to God and value others the way God values you. That is so simple, yet sometimes it's hard to do. Two, give more than you take. Here's a dumb example, but it's, it's true. My wife, when she's, sometimes she'll be cooking dinner and, and, um, I'll get my plate, and there's, like, the best cut of chicken on my plate. And I look at her plate, and there's, like, nothing on it. And I'm like, what? take some of my food. And she was like, well, I want to make sure you get the best. And I was like, why? You know, I, we could share this. You know, and she always does that. I just have a great wife, but she's always making sure that I get, like, the best plate of something. And that's such a, that, that's so amazing to me to see that. And I want to make sure that I do that for others. But the question is, do you give more than you take in your relationships? Your relationships were destined to be strangled if you're always taking, 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 taking. Somebody eventually is going to leave that relationship. That becomes an unbalanced thing. Number three, 
Forgive what you cannot forget. Forgive what you cannot forget. So every now and then, people do dumb things. We do bad things to each other. We say things to each other that are completely hurtful, right? If you've ever been in a relationship, you know this, and this has happened. You say things that are totally hurtful. But sometimes the only way to get past that is to forgive and remember honestly. It's to forgive and remember honestly. Do we keep short accounts? When we look back to the story of Joseph, when he went and confronted his brothers, he could have had 20 some odd years of, you know, oh man, these guys did this to me, these guys did this, I can't wait to, if I ever see them again. You know, you know those conversations you have with yourself in your head, if I see this person, I'm totally going to say this, right? Given the chuckle, I know that some of you have ever have had those thoughts. But he kept short accounts. He simply said, okay, these guys, I, God had a bigger purpose in this. I can see God's plan in all that happened here. And so in the midst of his relationships, he simply forgave what he couldn't forget. He simply forgave. Folks, unless we learn to truly let some stuff go, we will always be in bondage to some of the junk that's been done to us. So we need to learn to forgive. Even Jesus is standing giving the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if you realize that there's something against you or you have somebody, something against someone, go and be reconciled and then come offer your gift. I mean, if you want to win in your relationships, this one is so huge. Maybe there's some things even right now you're thinking, I, I never forgave this person of this. And we need to have an open, honest conversation. We need to talk about the elephant in the room and we need to deal with it right now. Number four, let God change people. This one is not as easy because we have this tendency within ourselves to want to change other people. But when we look through the scripture, one of the things that we see is when we begin to ask the question, whose job is it to change people? And you look through scripture and you ask that question and one of the things you consistently land back on is God it's God's job. I will make them fishers of men. The Lord added daily to the number of those who were being saved. When you look back on the scriptures, you see it's God's job to change people, not mine. And that takes the pressure completely off. But it's our job to pray for others. And so in your relationships, when you think about this one, it's God's job to change other people, not mine. But it's your job to pray for them. It's your job to lift them up before the Father on a regular basis. So it's our job to pray, and it's God's job to change. And number five, develop a heart for people. Sometimes you could have one through four down, but you just like, you know, you, as some, some people are introverts, and they just like, oh, I don't really like being around other people. I like people, I just don't like being around people, Right? Sometimes we get this feeling in our lives, and it's not, nothing wrong about being an introvert. I'm a complete introvert in the mornings. I need a good two hours all by myself to be good for anybody else the rest of the day. It's just totally, I just need to read and pray, and I, it's hard to function around other people unless I've done that. So develop a heart for people. When we think about our relationships, we tend to get short-sighted. We do not always think with eternity in view. We don't always think of 
people, every, every, um, every person's a soul. Every person has this eternity with God that, that needs to be reconciled and dealt with. We don't tend to think about that all the time. And so we need to be thinking, one, with eternity in view. But two, we need to be thinking, how can Jesus, what would Jesus want to say to this person right now? How would Jesus bless this person right now? So one of the things I've learned to do, and, and my friends at Abba Love taught me to do this, is that when you're in a meeting with somebody or when you're talking with somebody, simply pray this short, easy prayer. Jesus, how can I bless them today? That's it. How can I bless this person today? It'll help you develop a heart for people. When you pray these short, simple things, Lord, what can I say to this person? Or God, how can I bless this guy? It'll help you develop that heart for people. When I was in seminary, I was working a part-time office job, and I did all the mailing. It was a terrible job. Um, actually, the job wasn't so bad. The mailing was terrible. We had to do all the labels, and all, I had to do all the stamps, and we had about 1,000 things that we mailed per quarter. And I know it doesn't seem huge, but f- for the one guy that did it all, it was a lot of work. And at the, around that time, I was praying, God, help me develop a heart for people. And I knew that I already loved people, but I wanted to develop more of a heart for people. And so literally, as I'm praying this, my boss walks in and says, hey, I want you to mail off all these things. And literally, it's a giant box, whole bunch of stuff, that all, everything needed to be stuffed, stickered, all that stuff. And I had this little thing. I was peeling off names and sticking them on envelopes peeling off names and sticking them on envelopes. And I thought, what if I began to pray? I mean, these people are all CEOs, CFOs, um, titans of, of the financial industry. What if I just began praying for them? And so I did. And every single time, I just, Lord, bless this person. Lord, bless this person. Because I thought, what if, what if the world changed because of that simple little thing? You know, I don't know if anything ever came of that. But it was a way that God told me and helped me to develop a heart for other people. So today, as we begin to close, I want to challenge us to address the elephants in our room. Jacob and, and um, Joseph both had to do this. Jacob and Joseph both had to do this in profound ways. I want to challenge you and invite you to see what God is doing in the process. You know, when you have to go into these delicate relational situations, don't just go into them saying, you're right and I'm wrong. But essentially go into them and say, Lord, what do you want to get? What, do we, what should we get out of this problem? Lord, what are you doing here? Go at it prayerfully. Because as you do that, then God will begin to reveal the heart that you need to have in that relationship, the heart that you need to have in that discussion. But the most effective way is for God to be at the center of these relationships. So in order for us to really live life by God's pattern, I'm really convinced that we need to be dependent on God, first and foremost. Secondly, we need to give our character over to God and say, Lord, sometimes we do dumb things and help us not to do that. God, we want to make the best choices possible. And when we do that, then I think our relationships will be strengthened. And then from there, we're best postured to go after results. And we're going to talk a little bit more about what results look like next week because they look a little different than in this world. 
So as we close in prayer today, I just want to invite you, maybe there's this giant elephant in the room that you need to address in your own life. I want to invite you to um, think through what that is right now and to offer that up to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, many of us have elephants. God, they've been sitting in rooms for years, and every time we go back to the family gathering, they're there. God, every time we um, see somebody, we get this anxiety and this hurt. And we don't want to say what needs to be said, what desperately needs to be said. Because we think it might hurt. But Lord, would you guide us and lead us to reconcile some relationships today? God, would you guide us to make new what we may have broken in the past. Lord, we need to hear from you on this. We simply cannot go along in our relationships without you. Father, help us to consider others better than ourselves. Help us to serve others. Help us to love people with the love that you have for them. And God, help us to be honest with ourselves in the midst of relational struggles. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.